This is Sister Prince, and it's July 31st, 1987, and I'm interviewing Sam Klein for the uh, Black History Project at the Missouri Historical Society. We're going to talk about uh, Sam's experiences with the Urban League in the 40s and 50s. Sam is of the Caucasian race. Okay. Uh, Sam. Okay, we were talking about not tiring, Sam. Um, we we have talked a, a lot, you and I already. We've talked on the phone, and you've given me wonderful sources. Um, but let's just start at the beginning uh, and talk about how you got involved. I'd like it in your own words. Okay, uh, back in the. Uh, in the 30s, in the middle 30s, or, uh, I was, I was uh, active uh, in the American Legion of Americas program and uh, became uh, vice chairman of the Americanism Commission of the Department of the Missouri. And uh, the Department uh, America, the Americanism Com Commission nationally sends out scripts regularly to guide the State Department uh, uh, Commissioners, and uh, you're at liberty to edit them uh, in keeping with uh, regional needs or, your, or wherever your program would reach. In those days, we used radio, and uh, I was on every Sunday morning, most every Sunday morning, and I found myself, speaking of Americanism, I found myself frequently using the expressions without regard to race, color, or creed. Now, I was a dress manufacturer in those days in Washington Avenue here in the city of St. Louis and uh, had a sizable operation and a, and a sizable office with the young men and young women, in addition to uh, the factory employees. And it occurred to me, here I am every Sunday saying, without regard to race, color, or religion, and what am I personally doing about it other than preaching about it? So I decided I would start by integrating a black person in our office force. I felt that that was an easier way to start in the office force than to start in the factory division. And in consequence of that, I, I called the Urban League and explained what I had in mind and asked them to send me some applicants. How receptive were they to you? They were very enthusiastic and very receptive. It was probably an unusual request in those days, and uh, they sent me. Uh, they, I guess they put. They sent what they felt was the best shot, and I. I probably felt it was a pretty good shot too, except that the applicant, a female, was too light complected, and I felt that if I was going to do this, I just didn't have somebody uh, uh, that was as light as, as this individual was. I needed someone that was. Uh, unmistakably black, without uh, question. So I told them back at the Urban League what I wanted, and they did send me another young lady named Ruth Seals, uh, <coughs> who was quite competent, and uh, she took shorthand, was a good secretary, and she became my personal secretary. Now, <coughs> before I uh, uh, hired her, I got the leaders of my office force and uh, and uh, anybody else in that particular area of the, of the plant 
that I felt would have contact, and I got them together and explained what I was doing and pointed out that what I was preaching every week and doing nothing about it. And uh, it felt that, our, that we, we should do something about it. And the result was that we, we put this young lady on and we had some very minor incidents as a result of it. In the, in the building we were in on Washington Avenue near 12th Street, there was an elevator operator there. He was disabled, he was, but he was fully able to run that elevator. But he, other than that, he had some severe disabilities. I recall him very vividly coming up, opening the elevator door, looking at the off, down the office, and then saying to me, I thought there was a law against that. And I explained to him that there wasn't any law against that anymore than there was a law against him operating the elevator, despite the fact that he could hardly walk. And uh, he just slammed the elevator door down, but as time went on, he got used to it. <laughs> uh, we we uh, then had uh, a young lady uh, who was working there who uh, went home and told her mom, and her mom talked it over with her parish pastor. I don't want to, by using the term parish, I don't want to infer that it was a Catholic place. It was a, it was a, a, a Protestant denomination church. I don't recall where it was anyway. And uh, they talked that over, and the pastor advised, advised them that if she felt uncomfortable, she, she should quit. <laughs> so she came and told me what the pastor said, and I told her, well, then you'll have to follow his instructions. Uh, we. Uh, we may have had one or two other minor instances, and we got some hate mail, some some uh, obscene mail, uh, which comes from the from the uh, what do you call it, the halfwits around town, I guess. And uh, we overlooked those and had no no problems. Uh, I did report them to the police and and uh, simply make the record in case they did follow through on any threats, the police would have some idea. But uh, there wasn't anything serious and nothing happened and, and things adjusted. We had, had one incident, one interesting incident. The young lady, Ruth Seal, sat right outside my office door and I always kept my office door open. And I had a good view of a good part of the office. She sat directly behind Ruth Seals and she had two brothers who were priests here, in, one in St. Louis, one in Jefferson City. I met both of the priests, particularly the younger one who was here, who was an assistant here on the hill in, in St. Louis, and he uh, came to visit with us every once in a while and visit his sister and drop in and talk, and uh, I established a nice relationship with him. But I noticed that this young lady uh, was giving the black uh, lady a wide berth. She walked out of a way to not walk closely to her, though she sat directly back of back her, and, uh, but, but had very little conversation. So one day I called her into my office and I pointed out to her that her younger brother, who I'd stopped by frequently, had, I hadn't seen him in a long time, and I, I, I'd uh, like to have him come up and see me. I, I, if you give me his phone number, I'll call him. And she said, well, fine. And she told me the phone number. And, and as she walked out of the office, she turned around and she said to me, uh, is it about me? And I said, yes, it is. She said, well, what is it? And I said, well, I just wanted to know 
that if I could find out from your brother why you don't act like a real Christian. She said, I am a real Christian. I said, go outside and act like one. And that was the end of that incident. The, the, then in those days we worked until noon on Saturdays, half a day on Saturday, you know, we're going back now to the late 30s, early 40s. Uh, and, uh, and, and well, you uh, hired Ruth in '41, mm -hmm. didn't you? Yeah, about '41. Yeah, yeah, uh, and '41, uh, '42. Uh, but I, either one. Uh, at any rate, uh, uh, that noontime job usually that noontime uh, uh, deadline usually extended itself a half hour or an hour, and uh, uh, the girls the girls used to collect ten cents from each girl at noon and, and one of them would go out and buy a coffee and cake in, in, in Hollings, which was nearby. Ten cents went fa fairly far, far in those days. And uh, I was very pleased when the girl making the collection in the front office went over to Ruth Seals and asked her if she wanted to go along for, for a dime. And of course she was smart and she did that very promptly. Uh, and uh, there she was now. They were not only sitting together, but they were more or less eating together. And so this all was done over a comparatively short time. I do recall, as I dictate this now, that one of the early questions asked me when I called the group together to tell them about uh, uh, my thought about hiring a black uh, secretary. Then one of the ladies asked me, well, what toilet will she use? And I had to tell her she'd have to use the same one they did. And uh, they accepted that and nothing, nothing further happened. I had a, uh, a uh, black porter at that time and he was a little distressed about it. And so uh, I explained to him if he was feeling uncomfortable, I don't know for what reason, uh, uh, he, he just didn't have to stay there. He couldn't find himself another job. Well, he, uh, he made no further uh, protest and continued on. And, and, and Where do you think his distress came from? I, I, really, don't, I really don't know, but, but in, in, in keeping with that, I'll tell you another incident. This, I'm jumping ahead now a few years. Uh, That's okay. Maybe it was, he was afraid that if they were against her, they'd be against him. Well, that may be. But, uh, but uh, as I said, uh, I can relate another incident uh, which occurred, uh, and this was after I had become chairman of the Industrial Committee of the Urban League. This was the, the, staffing, the staff executive assigned uh, 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 to guide me and help me in the, with, the, with the work was Chester Stovall. Uh, and uh, he, uh, we together decided that we were going to try to get it at least one or two black drivers on the buses, on the, on, the, on the city buses. And after much negotiation, this took a year or more, uh, we finally got them to try two or three. At that time, uh, uh, James Chapman was chief of detectives in the city the police, the Metropolitan Police Department. And he, he was very, very cooperative. And uh, he put three, when, they, we had that, when the bus company hired these two or three bus drivers at the time, he put plainclothes detectors on each bus to ride the route with them all day. And then he, we had a, a four o'clock meeting in the police headquarters downtown, 12th Street, and uh, with Chapman, because uh, he, uh, he was having those detectors come in and tell him what happened during the day. And the interest of, there were no incidents at all, except one detective reported that 
as he was sitting there, and a black man came on, dropped his money in a fare box, looked up, looked at the driver, saw he was black, and he, he said, what are you doing here? <laughs> that, that was the only incident involved there, so I relate that to the incident of the black porter, but I have no idea what was in his mind, but I, I, now, stop it for a minute. Okay. Let me, let me see. Uh, when, when Ruth Seals came to you and uh, to be interviewed for the job, um, what did you all discuss as far as uh, what she might have to face and how to handle it? Well, we, Ruth Seals was obviously a woman of some intelligence, and I was able to speak to her quite candidly and frankly and tell her that there might be some problems. And then I also wanted, went on to tell her what I had told the folks at the Urban League. I told them that I wasn't a man of great wealth, and I realized wasn't one of the biggest businesses in the country, and that I anticipated that there might be some picketing or some other disturbances. And I said to them, I wouldn't run at the first shot, but I wouldn't be able to continue it if it, if it continued on and became uh, uh, a difficult process of people coming in or, or, or disturbing the other tenants in the building. And, uh, and then I also explained to her, I gave her some suggestions as to, as to her contacts with the girls, and she understood that she understood it very carefully. And, and the interesting thing of it is that there was many fast friendships were developed between Ruth and several of the of the people in the office. Now we always got a lot of, uh, of questions fired at us from visitors, whether they were salespeople calling on us or customers calling on us. Uh, we, we got a considerable amount of questioning about it, but uh, I can say, say, say in all sincerity, we never lost a customer and never lost anybody that, that, mm -hmm. that was uh, selling us merchandise. There were no objections to her at all. She had, a, of course, uh, she did, I always felt that she made a great contribution to her people because uh, it's to me, I liken her to Jackie Robinson, the first uh, black baseball player, who had he failed, uh, been a difficult person to handle in his early days and hadn't been confident, he would have set back, uh, back uh, uh, the advent of black, black baseball players in the big leagues for a few years because they would have simply said, we tried him, they're no good. Now the same thing applied to Ruth. She just was competent. She just was good. She knew what was going on. She knew what she had to do, and she did it in a very uh, ladylike manner. And the result was that uh, other people in the area hired the black people. The second person to hire one was Jack Cutter. It was Cutter Cautious Shoe Company, a wholesaler on Washington on Washington Avenue. He's, uh, uh, about a half block uh, uh, west of uh, 18th Street on the uh, south side of Washington, and uh, he had uh, uh, he had a, a chain. It was a wholesaler. He really wasn't a wholesaler. He was a chain store man uh, owner, and, and that that was the, his general offices were there, and he had a store floor where the general offices were, and then the upper floors were the, warehouse, were the warehouses and shipping departments for the shoes that came in and that they shipped out to their various destinations throughout the country. Now, uh, Jack came up and looked at the situation over and decided that he wanted to do that too. And the interesting thing that always intrigued me about Jack was that 
he had the store floor and, and, and people could look in the store window and see all these white people working in the office with the big black face uh, right smack in the center. Now, <clears throat> and uh, Jack's still around today. He can, he can tell his own story. He has a son that uh, is a rabbi uh, and uh, cut it off. <laughs> was, um, was any notice given when you hired any notice in the paper or anything given when you hired, and you showed me an article, but that was like three years after. Yes, no, no I didn't give any notice. We didn't. We, we, we felt we wanted to give the, the, the experiment, if I can call it that, a chance, and didn't feel it was wise to uh, publicize it at all. I didn't know, I didn't mean that you would have, I just meant that. No, I, I, would I no, no, uh, no but, uh, but the only notice we got was a couple of years later, and, and uh, I do recall that the Urban League had some sort of a meeting one day at the Staten Hotel, and they called me and asked if I would permit Ruth Seals to come down there and uh, visit with whoever they had at that meeting, and there was going to be some white people there, uh, and the point they wanted to make was that Ruth Seals was employed in an integrated office and so on. And I told him I had no objections to her coming down, but I didn't think it was wise because she had been working us for us at that time for about six or seven weeks. And uh, I said, now somebody will ask her the question and say, uh, uh, say, how long are you working there? And she'll say, oh, two months. And uh, I visualize the individual turning to whoever sitting alongside her and saying, well, she won't be there another two months because the idea was that uh, so different from and so uh, and so daring, I dare say, from what had been going on in the, in keeping with the mores of our community here, that they felt that she wouldn't last. So we did. No, they did nothing except for my advice. They did nothing, and I did nothing. However, about once or twice a year, the fashion editor, the Christian Science Monitor, would uh, come through the St. Louis to do a fashion story on the St. Louis mar uh, market, uh, the dress market, a manufactured market. And uh, she came into our office and saw this black face, and then she immediately asked to speak to me, and she said, now, you know, I've come to do a fashion story, and I know, don't know whether my editor will want this, but I want to write a story on this girl. Will you, will you permit it? And I said, sure, I will. And she did both stories, the fashion story on our own, on our place, and, and, and that story. And it subsequently was reported. Now it's well known in the in the press, in the journalism trade, that the Christian Sciences Monitor is the newspaper's newspaper. Uh, they, uh, most newspaper offices get the Christian Science Monitor regularly, and the moment that appeared in the Monitor, where the Post Dispatch called me up. That's how it happened. Uh, yeah, they called me up and they came up with their cameras a day or two later and, and uh, published this, uh, uh, okay. a story that uh, went pretty far, uh, picked up by papers. It picked up, was picked up around the world, as a matter of fact. I got, paper, I got letters from, from people, uh, all, all pleasant letters from black people throughout this country and, and from overseas. Well, that's what I was concerned about, that kind of whet my appetite to see how, how it was reported and why it was reported three years later. It just happened. By, just, mm -hmm. just happened. 
And we, we didn't report it because it, it, things were going along pretty good, mm -hmm. quietly, and we mm -hmm. did nothing about it, and probably never would have, mm -hmm. except that they, they, uh, they uh, picked the Christmas Science and Monitor, picked it up, and the Post Dispatch got it right away. I wondered what, how that happened. Um, how long did we seals work for you? The seals must have been there about 10 years, uh, 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 at least 10 years. At least ten years. And you tell me that uh, you had conversations with her throughout the following years oh, over the phone. Oh, oh yes, yes, yes. Uh, I, I, I kept in touch with her as uh, years went by. And I do remember you saying something to me that when you first did hire her, that manufacturers, other manufacturers. Okay. You, you you spoke of uh, Mr. Cutter picking up on it yes. and hiring, but that well they weren't all for it uh, and warned you. Uh, no, no, there is a considerable amount of interest by the manufacturers. We had an interesting thing in those days. We used to have I was I was chairman of the board of directors of the Associated Garment Industries in St. Louis, and that included all the all the garment manufacturers in Washington. And in my efforts to get a, a, a sizable group together at, at a meeting, which was difficult at times, either the day, the t time of the day, or the time of the night, a night was never important. But we, have, I had an executive committee, and I wanted to get as many of them. So I decided that I would call uh, like a seven o'clock meeting in my office, promise them, promise the attendees that they'd be back in their place no later than nine o'clock and that we'd have a continental breakfast. Well, Ruth Seals being my secretary, she was there with me at seven o'clock, and she helped me uh, uh, pass out the sweet rolls and the coffee and so forth. And this, uh, this aroused the interest of, of uh, many of the manufacturers. That one man uh, uh, told me that uh, if he could get a girl like Ruth, mm -hmm. he, he would hire her. I want a girl just like the girl that married your old dad. Interesting thing about him, I said, well, you can take her. You can take her because she'll be glad to go if she knows that I put another black person on in her instead. See? Well, I don't. I have to tell you, this kind of flawed the guy. He never took her. He never hired a black. <laughs> you are something, Sam. Stop that, and I'll tell you. He just, you know, a lot of those things. Yeah. Where were we? Well, we were we were right at that story. Um, did you did you hire any other black? Oh yes, yes. In yesterday's paper, yesterday, yeah, in Burgers column yesterday. Mm -hmm. In Burgers column yesterday, that would have been July 29th, uh, He had a column on the, on the Williams. Did you read the column? No. Dr. Williams. Dr. Jerome Williams. Dr. Jerome Williams. I know that. I well, know who that is. Now, Dr. Jerome Williams has apparently a couple of sons that are mm -hmm. doctors. Yeah, one was uh, one of the first young men to go to John Burroughs. Young black. Oh, we mentioned that the other day. Well, Dr. Dr. Williams' wife worked for me uh, as he, before she was married. And there was a very beautiful, uh, very light-complexed person who could never, who I never would have hired as my first black woman. Mm -hmm. But uh, after we established it, then we had Gertrude Lewis, whose husband was a doctor. And she went there. 
she, they, when they finished his residency here, he went to Asbury Park. We had uh, Francis Haif, who I always felt should have been on a, on, a, on a cover of Vogue magazine, whose husband is a pediatrician and they live in Kansas City. Uh, I, I had any number of blacks that, 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 uh, thereafter. And I thoroughly accepted and appreciated. What we had one of the one of the girls used to model up in up in the factory there and work with him and so forth and so on. Mm -hmm. So it was real, real interesting. <clears throat> we had uh, many black girls uh, that we added as years went on. Uh, and the interesting thing about these girls is, is that they, in most instances academically had much higher education than most of our whites. Going back uh, 40 some odd years ago, you get a white person working in your office, probably a high school graduate, and, and, a, and a local business college every year or two years, or one of the private schools that taught uh, stenography and other business office details. But these, these girls were, were all college, girls with college degrees. Some came from Harry and and some from Howard, and Harry is a, is a college in Nashville, Tennessee, I believe, and Howard University is in Washington, D.C. Their husbands were, were residents and interns here in the local uh, hospital, Homer Phillips Hospital, and uh, many of them went on to practice uh, in other cities or hometowns, and some stayed here, like, the, like Dr. Williams. Now, uh, uh, I that. that was it. That, that, was, it. that was the important point. Um, now, I, I'd like to make note of the fact that you did this before you were a member of the Urban League. That th well, this yes, was on yeah, your yeah, own. Yes, this had nothing yeah, to do with yeah, them. You used yeah, them only yeah, for right. to get someone. So, so uh, then yeah, let's uh, let's lead into how you became involved in the Urban League. Uh, so I answer the simply Is this mm -hmm. working? Yeah, it's on. Okay. Okay. Uh, I, I was not a member of the Urban League at the time I did any of these things, but after a year or so I received a letter from Bishop Scarlett, uh, who uh, was at that time very active in the Urban League, uh, uh, probably president, I don't recall, and he uh, wrote a letter and asked me if I would be interested in serving as a member of the Board of Directors of the Urban League, which I felt pleased and honored to receive and I accepted it and served on their board of directors for a number of years and as I said I believe earlier in this tape that I served as chairman of the executive of the industrial committee and in that capacity uh, one of the goals that I had was to integrate uh, blacks into heretofore segregated businesses like retail stores downtown and, and uh, milk wagon drivers and bus drivers and so on and uh, we, we concentrated on the on the bus company because they were already carrying loads of blacks in various areas and we succeeded and, and uh, I don't know how many bus how many drivers are on, black drivers are on there but I noticed that they're black 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 men and black women that are driving buses today. Sam how hard was it? do that? And, and where did you get your biggest resistance and how did you find the... Well, it, 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 I guess you can't measure biggest resistance. You had resistance uh, all over. Uh, I can relate the story that uh, 
I didn't personally experience this. The, the executive director of the Urban League was reporting to this when he came into one of my uh, uh, industrial committee meetings. And as executive director, he was ex officio, so he could come to any meetings if he wanted to. And he heard me together with the members of the committee discussing uh, the probability of getting some drivers uh, on the milk wagon routes particularly in some of the areas then that are beginning to have a substantial uh, black population. And, uh, and he told me that, he told me that, uh, that he did, he'd been trying to get, get bus, uh, milk wagon drivers, but he was told that as long as the drivers were, as long as milk was white, the drivers were going to be black. And I, I facetiously had said to no, him. No, they were going to be white. As white. long as milk was white, yeah. they were going to be well, white. And I facetiously said to him, well, what about chocolate milk? And of course, that broke down the committee meeting. Mm -hmm. Now, Maria Williams will remember that, I she, guess. Yeah. I'm sure she was at that meeting. Okay. Uh, at any rate. And, uh, uh, but, but we met with considerable resistance. Uh, but it became, we, it, it didn't, those things didn't happen overnight. We must have worked the bus people for a couple of years before we were able to get, get, get a try. And uh, I guess that must have been, uh, by that time, was probably the 1950s. Mm -hmm. Now, you wouldn't remember, uh, or would you remember any of the, any of the drivers? Uh, I, I didn't meet any of the drivers mm -hmm. myself. I didn't meet any. Closest I got to the drivers when I went to Chief Chapman's office in, in the uh, in the uh, police headquarters, and his, his officers reported there were no incidents, and, and and there was just the one observation that I mentioned earlier on the tape, and we felt with with that we felt we had accomplished something, and that the, the increase in, in, in employment would be a natural situation, uh, and it apparently was and is to the fact that there's so many blacks driving buses now and the like. And, uh, and you finally got them into the dairies? Yeah. The dairy drivers? Yeah, yeah, we, yeah we got them. Spite of the color of the milk? Yeah, that's, that's true. <laughs> we got it. Well, it, it spread all over. We got them in the stores downtown. What was the first store? I think the first store was Sticks Bear Fuller. I don't recall, but I believe it was Sticks Bear Fuller. Mm -hmm. And the interesting thing about the first store uh, here, was that I was in New York and went into R.H. Macy and was utterly amazed to see a black girl uh, in one of the departments. And I stayed in that department and watched it and, uh, and, no and noticed that, that, the, that the customers never even noticed her color. And I, I uh, determined that that was true because I interviewed one or two of them. Uh, I followed them in the store and then I asked her. But no, she didn't, she didn't notice that. People just went in and, and she received, the girl received them intelligently and, and wisely and soundly and properly. And, and that's when the customer bought it and I went away. Mm -hmm. I, didn't, I didn't spend a lot of time doing that, but I must have talked to three or four women. Uh, who had been buying it? That kind of because I was surprised to see because I didn't I didn't reproach the girl myself at all because New York was a big city and they, and they were suspicious of, of, of everybody. But I then I came back and and pointed that out here in our discussions at home and and, and stores. Now I had help uh, Chester Stovall, who was the executive his, his secretary, uh, uh, yeah, of our committee, 
he, uh, he was a very capable person, very capable, and uh, subsequently went to Kansas City and became uh, the top person in all black uh, community affairs there, and I haven't seen her from now in the last, uh, well, since about 1974, but he had been very successful in Kansas City in his activities. Uh, what other blacks were you involved well, with at that time? Uh, well, uh, well, all right. What other what other blacks? Well, uh, one interesting person was Scoville Richardson. S C O V E L, and the last name was Richardson. Richardson was a lawyer out of Chicago that came here and uh, practiced law here, and was a member of the Urban League. Eventually became president of the Urban League and was an active uh, black Republican who uh, subsequently uh, uh, became, was appointed by President Eisenhower as a member of the Board of Pardon and Parole in Washington, D.C. And apparently did such a good job that he became chairman of this uh, commission in Washington, D.C. And subsequently, due to his competence, apparently, he was mentioned for a judgeship, federal judgeship. There was a vacancy here, and, and, and he was uh, recommended by, I think, Barrick Mattingly, M-A-T-I-N-G-O-Y. He was National Republican Committeeman, I believe, at that time. Now, it appears that there was considerable opposition to him coming, as I was told, from the boot heel here in Missouri. And uh, uh, which, which this federal district apparently embodied at the time. And uh, the uh, President Eisenhower, whoever handled his administration, uh, uh, diplomatically uh, uh, got him an appointment in New York where he served a, as a, a, a federal judge on the U.S. Court of Customs Court. Uh, which is uh, comparable, same type of uh, uh, arrangements as a regular district judge has. District district judge has he had his lifetime appointment, and, uh, uh, and and he has sat here. He has come here on assignment. And the last time I saw him, I guess was here when he was here on assignment, hearing custom cases in the federal building. There were four four ways it seemed in the 40s and 50s that that um, civil rights were being pursued uh, for Negroes. Uh, there was uh, the Urban League and AACP and through politics and then through core notion uh, of racial equality. Um, how did the Urban League, the Urban League was after employment, okay, that was their well, main yeah, thrust, yeah. but what I'd like to know is, is how did they, was theirs through, some, some of the NACP and, and CORE was through sit-ins and, and things like that. This was more through executive, is that correct or not? Well, this was more through, through, through the channels of well, executive. Now, the Urban League, as you know uh, by its name, it was established uh, to help urbanize the Negro mi migrants that were coming into the big cities. 
and to find them employment because uh, 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 there wasn't too much cotton picking around here. And much, much of their early days, they handled the domestic employment because they had great, great numbers of Africans, people that wanted to work as maids and waiters and, and uh, chauffeurs, and they, had, uh, they handled a lot of that, and they were successful in pricing them. And having, having them get some income, they didn't have the welfare situations that we have now. And uh, they, gra they, they gradually involved where I don't think they handle any domestic anymore. It's just uh, more upgraded things, and, and, their, and, their, and their activities have gone off in other directions. Now, as to their relationship with CORE and the NAACP and the other organizations, they, they, they had a close relationship with them. Now, the, the, the uh, leaders of the, of the Urban League and the directors and, uh, and those who, and the, and the Caucasians, if you want to use that word, that were interested in the Urban League, they uh, helped the other, uh, the more activist organizations. They participated in sit-ins. There's a man in this city named Irvin Dagan, his wife Maggie. You know, they sat in a couple of times activist organizations, and uh, th there was a close working relationship with them, except that the Urban League uh, was more established and, and had to uh, sort of limit some of his activist, activist activities because they were recipients from the, from the uh, uh, community chest, and you know, we call it what, the United Peel Appeal now, mm -hmm. and, uh, and they, could, they, they could suffer a cutoff Days quickly from some reactionary directors of the well, community. Church. My question was that when you went to when you went to see about uh, jobs, you had instead of protesting kind of things, you worked through the organizational route of of the uh, uh, well not of the urban league but of the uh, dairies and of oh, the well, that's yeah, what I'm saying. We work out of the urban out of the urban league and, and, and went direct and made direct contact. That's what I'm saying. Yeah, we made direct contact. You didn't sit around and protest. You're oh, not no, you're oh, not no, doing no, it. No, you no, you went straight to oh, the people no, and we, negotiated. See, that's why I said activist activists. We're mm -hmm. not in the, we weren't in the activist mm -hmm. business. Mm -hmm. this came this came later. The core is a comparatively new organization. Well core was in the late forties. Well it's compared to the urban league. But we're trying to center in on the 40s and 50s, uh, you know. Yeah, well, so the bus and the yeah, dairies were yeah, in the 40s and yeah, 50s. Well, <coughs> we, we, we went it's direct. We went to personnel people. Mm -hmm. And then whatever out we could seek outside help. Sometimes we got into a tough situation with a personnel manager. We would try to find out who knew the president or, or whatever personal contact that you could get to, to get a a sympathetic and understanding ear. Well, from looking at your board and looking at the people, uh, the white people that were sitting on your board, Bishop Scarlet and people like that, you, you had access to... Well, we, uh, we, we did not have a lot of Bishop Scarlets in those days. I've sometimes said that it, it wasn't fashionable for whites to be on the Urban League board in those days. Now, Bishop Scarlet and, uh, and, the, uh, and a man named Clark who was the first, I believe, John Clark. John Clark. Well, he was black. He was black. He was a neighbor. But he was, he, 
uh, he and uh, Bishop Clark came, went Bishop to uh, Bishop Scarlet rather went to the same college. Huh. It was an Eastern college, and that was, as I used to say in those days, John Clark was a was a very nice, uh, low-key gentleman, and uh, and uh, if they told him as long as milk was white, the drivers were going to be white, he accepted that and walked out and advised us that that was an ultimatum. That, uh, his great claim to fame was, in my opinion, the fact that he went to the same college as, as, uh, as Bishop, as Bishop Scarlet. Yeah. Uh -huh. So I, I count Bishop Scarlet's presence there. Not, uh, not only was he a compassionate person and interested in the welfare of the black, but uh, he would also be glad to help his old classmate. Mm -hmm. I also so we, we, we didn't have many whites. I, I attended yep. many meetings that were, were committee meetings. There'd be no whites there at all. Alfleischer, not Alfleischer. Alfleischer. Al Fleischman Al Al became president of the year. He, he came later. Yeah, later. Yeah. Okay. Um, all right. Yeah. So what what else what else would you could you think of that happened in the forties or fifties? As far as employment, well, some of the big. Uh, well, all right, we're talking about we're talking about uh, the war. What, how about the opening up of? Was there a march on Washington that they had here for opening up jobs for? Uh, well, uh, in the, in the, the war effort, war, uh, war activity, I was, I, I was Probably, doing something else. Yeah, you, you weren't in that. No, I, I wasn't in that. Well, they had the Korean War in the fifties. Well, by that time, I, I wasn't too active. Okay. How would you sum up the forties and fifties as far as the changes that were made? Not so much by the Urban League, but just. Generally speaking, as you well, the forties and fifties. Now, it seemed by that. Let me, let me think back here. Uh, well, I can relate a story of, of the first black newspaper reporter mm -hmm. in uh, in this part of the country, mm -hmm. and his name is John Hicks, who is now a member of the Foreign Service and. Washington, D.C., ready to retire. He's been there for, well, over 30 years, but, and he's on his last assignment now. He's in Germany, on an assignment with, there with his wife. John uh, John was a graduate of the uh, University of Illinois, and, and uh, he worked his way through college in, in, in Champaign, and uh, well, he lived in East St. Louis. Uh, when he got out of school, uh, he, his, uh, there was an elderly lady there whose house he used to keep clean and wash her windows and so forth. And she had a nice attachment for him. She worked for, and she called her son, who was associated with me in business on Washington Avenue, uh, a man named Gregory, and asked if he could help uh, uh, John get employment. And Gregory came to me and I suggested to have John come to see me, and John was interested in journalism and so forth. So I wrote, in those days we had three newspapers. We had the Globe, Times, uh, and the Star, I guess it was. 
And I wrote to the managing editors of all three of those papers. From one, I got no reply. From the other, I got a reply that they weren't hiring at this time. But from the Post-Dispatch, I got a reply to send him over. And the Post-Dispatch hired him. And he worked for, for the paper for several years. Now, uh, he left the paper because of the following incident. He was assigned uh, to, uh, to uh, obtain a story from some meeting or the like that was going on and being held in the Missouri Athletic Club downtown. And when John went down, the doorman at the, at the Missouri Athletic Club told me he had to go to the rear door. He said, no, he was a newspaper reporter. He went right in here. Told him he couldn't come in. So John called his newspaper. And his newspaper suggested to him, that's the Post-Dispatch, that they would send over somebody else and he should come back in the office. Mm. Well, John was uh, quite upset about that after having spent a few years there in the Post-Dispatch and being well-liked. He, uh, he came up to see me and uh, told me he was going to quit. And I suggested to him that he ought to apply now for a government job. Uh, I mentioned the FBI, I mentioned the Foreign Service, and mentioned a few things, and he did apply to the Foreign Service, and he uh, was interviewed, and his wife was interviewed, and he was accepted, and he's been there now 30-some-odd years, ready to retire. <laughs> you keep probing me for stories. <laughs> <laughs> Sam, you are, you are a wealth of information. Uh, I think that when you started this hiring, what we were talking about at the very beginning with Ruth, you, you really had the courage of your convictions because you seemed to have a, a passion for what you were doing, so you, um, ha you were like walking a straight line and you had an answer for all of those that uh, got in your way, and I don't mean it in a bad way, I mean you just said it like it was, and how you felt, and it, and it worked out that way, and they followed you. Yeah, I guess that's about it. I can't describe it any better. I don't know. I just did uh -huh. it. Yeah. I just decided I mean, that it was the right thing to do, and I did it. Yeah, like the gentleman who said he'd, he'd like to have one, yeah. like just like that. I can deviate a little. This machine still rolling? It's still rolling. Well, I can deviate a little bit of pioneering color in industry. Where it's at. Now, sewing machines were always black. Are we in the 40s and 50s? Yeah, we're in the, we're in the, <laughs> probably the 30s, 40s, the late 30s, yeah, late 30s and 40s. Sewing machines were always black, and I read that, that factories, that, that it's a shade of green. In fact, that's the shade that machines now come from the fact, shade of green that was good for the workers' eyes. We had all the ladies that were walls had to be a certain color, so, and I decided that I would do that, and, and we, uh, we, uh, we did that over a weekend, and what we did, we had a painter come in, a crew, and paint all the machines, mm -hmm. all green, that shade, we matched that shade of green according to what the specification was, we did the wall, we did the whole thing, and pe people came to work with, uh, uh, on Monday morning, with well, it's like everything else. It's a suspicion of change. The lady sat down in the machine she'd been working on for several years. She said, I don't like this machine. You want my old machine? Where's my old machine? <laughs> working on her old machine. <laughs> so, 
So, but then after a while, they find themselves more comfortable. Uh -huh. you know? And we piped in that music. And uh, as I said, I was asked to lecture on both color and industry and, and, uh, and uh, uh, music and industry at the University of Indiana. Well, I can't think of the name, but I got a picture around here someplace. I can't the name is well known. It's Purdue. Mm -hmm. Purdue, yeah. First airplane trip my life took. We flew up to uh, up to uh, Indianapolis, where she had a friend, and she stayed with the friend. And I took I rented a car, went to Purdue, and they put me up in the dormitory over there. And, I, and here I am, you know, a guy with no high school education, lecturing to the professors and a whole, whole bunch of things. Because I was in the Navy when I was 15. Let me show you my pictures here. Okay. I would like I would like to just uh, put on this tape when uh, I asked Sam about the rest of the 40s. He said he was doing something else. He just informed me he was in the army. So no, I wasn't. You weren't part of the neighborhood. That was United States Coast Guard. Coast Guard, yeah. but but you certainly were otherwise occupied. Okay. And whoever ran your business while you were I'm gone. Your partner and, and had the same uh, convictions uh, you did. Well, my, yeah, well, yes. So the things who has passed away was a very good person. Yeah, he, he did feel that uh, some of my uh, thoughts were radical, but he was always willing to listen to them mm -hmm. and, and uh, went along with them. I got when we integrated the blacks and there was a shot or two fight. He got a little nervous about that, but he soon overcome it. Mm -hmm. yeah, overcame it, and and uh, he uh, and he. Uh, Entered into all of this mm -hmm. stuff. So obviously, he was, he was a kind, compassionate yeah. person, and a very good person. And I, 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 my, my Coast Guard duties were out of this city, working out of this city. Oh, you were still here. I was on the river. The Mississippi River is the great, one of the greatest highways in the world, or in this country, anyway. And we transport munitions and all sorts of things has to be done. And that whole area had to be patrolled, and we patrolled it in, mo in, 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 in boats and, and, uh, and jeeps. And jeeps, we patrolled that thing. And, uh, and uh, it was, it was uh, active, non te temporary active, non paid duty. It tells you on one of you see me relieving some. Come here. <laughs> okay. In regard to what we were talking about this morning, um, is there anything you feel you want to add or anybody's name that you want to talk about? Uh, I am going to interview uh, Marie uh, Williams, who was, uh, who was black and who was part of the Urban League for 40 years and is still in an executive Director of employment. She had. She was something at that. Yeah, and she is now working three days a week at UMSL, as uh, in, in the employment but what area, she, finding what, jobs. Finding jobs. It's a paid job, I guess. I, I will find out. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Discreetly. Yeah, she, she. Uh, but uh, is is there anyone that you worked with? Uh, that, that you can recall at the moment that you would like to talk about, or anything else that you would like to add well, for these I, times? Well, I worked mostly with Chester Stovall, and then, of course, uh, uh, Marie and 
most everybody up there. I do remember being asked to to uh, be on a panel at the Urban League one occasion, and I was told there would be uh, two or three black men and, and uh, two white men or something. And I got there and I counted up the white men and I counted three. And then uh, I called Chester aside and I said, who is that guy? And he said, That's, he gave me his name, he was a lawyer here in town. And I said, well, I was just too white man. He says he's black, <laughs> but I sure didn't know it. <laughs> mm -hmm. And he and the story there is that their daughter was just about as white as, as he and the white well, the wife was uh, racially was just as white, and she was going to school at the University of Illinois. But they took her out for Senator Howard because she was dating too many white persons, and that, that it wasn't that they had any prejudice against the white, but they felt that that their daughter would be hurt. It wouldn't be hurt, so they took her out and put it, I can't think of their name at all now. The Marie will remember. Marie will remember the guy. He was a white, white, absolutely. But, but in those days, in those days, if you had a drop of Negro blood or black blood, you, you were black. We've right? heard that before, haven't we, Sam? Huh? <laughs> we know about that. Yeah, see? Um, and I, I, I just thought it was another white person on there. So I'd be amazed mm -hmm. to find out who he was. Like, Ruth Seals used to uh, used to get mad at that woman, and that woman would tell stories. Ruth would tell me this. After all, Ruth who worked, worked for me for ten years, and we got to know each other very well. And she said that 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 woman would would you know, they'd meet a group of women would be going, and she started talking about going to the Ambassador Theater and going there. They, they, Theaters weren't admitting blacks, mm -hmm. see? but she could just go out and buy a ticket and she'd sit around and tell yeah. them about it, and Ruth makes her so damn mad. <laughs> How did uh, did Ruth talk to you at all about? Uh, did Ruth talk to you at all about her side of it? Uh, uh, about how her family felt about her coming to work? Uh, well, were she, they concerned well, for she, her? Well, Ruth was uh, a divorced. She had a. Uh, one son, Romy, just that one child, and, uh, and who lived with her, and then she and they lived together with her mother on Maffet. And uh, yeah, Ruth uh, did uh, tell me some tall tales about her father, and her father was part white, and uh, this was a customary thing. Well, he could have been, she, mm -hmm. but she was very obviously black, as I told you in the beginning, or she wouldn't have been working there. She must have taken all after her mother. She just tells some stories. But that this business of black and white, there was no barriers between us talking about mm -hmm. anything without feeling any, any sense of sensitivity. Mm -hmm. No, I just meant was her yeah. what was her family? Was anyone concerned for her in no, her position? No, I guess not because Ruth was a strong person. Nobody would have been able to be concerned about it. She's going to do what she wanted to do, and she did it well. How did the Urban League find the right people to go? Uh, well, I, like the bus, the right bus drivers, or the right Ruth Seals, uh, or the right. Uh, uh, well, they they had staff there, and, and who they would would make inquiry. They had mm -hmm. staff, and then they had a lot of contact. There's all the, the 
busy in all the churches and they announce that stuff in the churches and mm -hmm. on Sunday and they get a lot of applicants and they would scream and so forth. And Marie, I think I told you the story about Marie. It was Marie that sent me the girl with all the makeup on. It wasn't for me, it was for the fashion creators that wanted to, who wanted to have a black person and uh, a girl named Gardner, named Gardner. I thought she would try and, and she said, will you, will you have a license? Sure. So I called down there and then this girl came to red and lipstick and all over and sent it back to Marie. <laughs> she, she wouldn't be for me anyway. <laughs> well, Sam, I thank you. Okay. I really appreciate it. As always, this is. How about you want a little seven up or something? I'll have a little something. <laughs> what do you have?